Hey, 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 hey there. Welcome to episode 63 of the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. I am Jeff Wright, one of your regular hosts. Unfortunately, Jared Moore is not with me on this one, but guys, I got to tell you, this episode is a real treat for me because we have brought on a special guest that I have been hoping to book on the podcast really since the earliest days, and he was gracious enough to join me, give me an hour of his time, and I think you'll find uh, as you listen that that hour is dripping with wisdom and thoughtful commentary and insight. That guest is Pastor Doug Wilson of Moscow, Idaho. Doug, as I mentioned, is a pastor. He's also an educator, uh, author, wordsmith. He's he's prolific. You'll hear him say at one point that he kind of has to write the same way uh, a fish has to swim or something to that effect, and I think that's exactly right. Doug has had a big impact on me, actually, through his writing. So he's one of those mentors from a distance. I've heard him speak quite a bit over the years through different uh, conferences. I've read a bunch of the stuff he's written and plan to read more. And I always find Doug to have a deeply biblically informed position. And even in the places where I think he gets something wrong, I never get any hint that he's wrong because he's embarrassed of what the Bible has to say. And in a day where uh, courage is sometimes not springing in abundance, I think it's uh, very helpful. And I think also you can see that the Lord has clearly blessed his work in ministry. He's blessed him with uh, God-fearing children who join him in ministry, blessed his institutions uh, that he's founded, New St. Andrews, Logos School, whatnot. Uh, I'm not surprised by that because, as I mentioned, Doug seems to be a man who is deeply embedded in the truth of Scripture, and I really appreciate that. The thing is, he's also deeply involved in what we would call culture making, culture making in the home, culture making in local government, culture making in what we would call pop culture or this civic arena. And so I just wanted to pick his brain on how those things came to be. In particular, uh, one of the ways I've benefited from his insights in building healthy, God-honoring cultures is through my work at the Classical School Highland Rim Academy of Cookville, Tennessee, that I once worked at full-time and which now allows me uh, very graciously on their part to keep my toes in the water as a part-time staff member. My wife is founding faculty there. She works full-time there in administration. That institution is incredibly important to us, and we would not have been involved with the school from the day it launched if a friend hadn't put a copy of Doug's Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning in our hands during my wife's education uh, to be an educator at the University of Tennessee. You'll hear me thank Doug for that, and I really mean it. We love Highland Rim Academy. We believe that it is a powerful instrument in God's hands for our community. And again, we we wouldn't be there if it wasn't for for catching one of Doug's books on the subject. I mean, obviously, the Lord is sovereign and his providential care dictates all things. But the way he chose to act is through that book that Doug took the time to write. So with that in mind, uh, I'll quit I'll quit giving intro and we'll get right into the interview with Doug. I had about an hour of Doug's time and I was already afraid that the interview would turn into an episode of the Chris Farley show where I just told Doug, you know, how awesome all the stuff he's done is. So the approach I took in the interview is is to try to feed him some questions and sit back and listen to him uh, give his thoughts. I think you'll find that a profitable approach to the interview as well. So without further ado, here's my interview with Pastor Doug Wilson. Hey, Pastor Doug Wilson here on the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. Uh, Pastor Wilson, thank you so much for taking the time to do this for us. 
You are most welcome. Good to be with you. I need to pay a debt of gratitude. Uh, Early in the 2000s, my wife was uh, at State U learning about how to become a great educator, and we learned pretty quickly that uh, it just wasn't going to work for us as Christians. And so a friend who is now a relative put Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning in her hands, Uh and she ended up helping plant a uh, a classical school here in town, and I teach there a little bit too, and uh, anyway, that opened the door for a lot of positive influence you've had on us from a distance. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, I've got you on here because I wanted to talk to you about culture and culture making and engaging the culture. I, I can't think of any more cliched buzzwords to uh, to throw into that hopper, though. But that's the general idea of what I'd like to, to pick All your right. brain on. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. So I, I guess probably most evangelicals who would be the audience for this podcast are familiar with Ken Meyer's definition uh, through Andy Crouch of culture as what humans make of the world. Uh, I don't, I've never been really satisfied by that. And so just to start with definitions, if you could, what would you define culture as? Okay. I would define culture following uh, Henry Van Til's definition, which is culture is religion externalized. Okay. 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 So at the center of every culture is worship, cultus, right? So uh, there is there there are no cultures without a divine center, without a theos, without a god. Um, idolatrous cultures have an idol at the center. Um, living cultures have the true god, the living god at the center, and we become like what we worship. And uh, what what culture is is the instantiation in art, dance painting, architecture, family customs of that people's um, root faith commitments. Who do they worship? Who do they worship and why? And and there's no there's absolutely no way for a people to worship the same being, the same deity, and not have that take take a cultural form. If you have a cosmopolitan culture, Right. Let's say you uh, you say, well, I I don't think you have to have a common shared uh, belief in Baal or Allah or Jesus. Why can't you? Why can't we be like Manhattan? And we've got the most cosmopolitan uh, culture on Earth. Uh, Why why can't we do that? No, there's a God of the system there. His name is Mammon. (laughs) Right. Certainly. Right. So just because you don't have a temple. Uh, and you're not leaving little lit candles and baskets of fruit in front of a statue of mammon doesn't mean that there isn't a god of the system. And that god of the system is going to shape the entire surrounding culture. So Mecca in Saudi Arabia is the externalization of a certain set of faith commitments. Uh, Manhattan is the externalization of a certain set of faith commitments. Um, And the same is of Heartland America, you know, it, it, it's the externalization of religion. Okay, so would you differentiate then between high culture and low culture, or I mean, for the purposes of our podcast, high culture and pop culture? Yeah, so what I would do with terms like uh, highbrow, lowbrow, middlebrow, all that stuff, those are subcultures. Okay, okay. So um, a culture is a. Um, Cultures have armies and navies and parliaments and 
uh, common shared language, etc. And then within that culture, you're going to have a few people who really like orchestras, you know, <laughs> who really like uh, refined culture, the fine arts, right? Sure. But that's a sub, that's a subculture. There has never been a culture where everybody in that culture, from stems to stern, was an MFA uh, student, right? Sure. It, it's but so those sorts of things are subcultures by definition. So those are cultural issues, but they are not uh, they are not cultures that that cover the waterfront. Okay, so years ago, I read a book by Michael Horton called Where in the World is the Church? And he made the point, and I'd, I'd just like to see if you agree, disagree, modify. He made the point that what we tend to think of as high culture, what you're calling one of the, one of the uh, subcultures in the broader culture, that it kind of drives popular culture, that high culture is upstream and popular culture is downstream. Uh, would you see those as just separate pawns? Or would you would you say there's something to that idea that that what's happening in the elite circles eventually works its way down to a more grassroots level? Uh, yeah, I'd say it's. I would say that that's true up to a point, right? So, for example, in our day, uh, the fine arts. Um, th- so, if going going back a ways, you've got basically uh, three ways you can go in a society. There's the mechanical arts, engineering, STEM. You know, mechanical arts fine arts and liberal arts, okay? And the fine arts, dancing, sculpture, um, uh, music, and so forth, those those sorts of things have, a, they are upstream un, unless and until they've all lost their way or lost their minds or both, and nobody wants to be like them, okay? Sure. <laughs> all right, so as long as, uh, so basically, uh, let's say in the 19th century, um, when the poet laureate of of England was uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, okay, and he was a household name. All the middle class houses had volumes of his poetry. Kids grew up reading and memorizing his poetry, and people wanted to be like him. All right, sure. so, so that was an era when the when the fine arts was upstream. But nobody gives a rip now who the poet laureate is, right? Yeah. Uh, poets write for uh, poetry journals with a subscription list of 17. They write poems for one another. Um, the people downstream don't care, right? The people downstream don't care. So I would say ordinarily in a healthy culture, um, the refined uh, the refined artists, the people who are on the top of their game – ought to be having an impact on pop culture. But in our day, I would say that that's not really the case anymore. And I, I would also say when things are when things are going um, the way they ought to, the church also ought to be upstream from pop culture. Okay, well, that that's a great transition. So my understanding and tell me if I'm if I'm wrong in, in my understanding of your position is that your hope for the West is a return uh, to a culture that I think you've called mere Christendom. Is is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And so it, maybe you just would, if our listeners aren't familiar, could you give us a sketch of what mere Christendom is? So what I mean by mere Christendom is I believe that, since I believe that culture is the instantiation or the externalization of a faith, uh, of, of, um, of worship, of religion, being a Christian 
I would like that faith to be the true one. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't want to help build idolatrous cultures. So you're either going to have an idolatrous culture or you're going to have a faithful culture. And I want it as a Christian, I want it to be a faithful culture. Now, I also want it to be a faithful culture in the main, one that's not racked by divisions between Christians. All right. So um, I would like what I would like to see ideally is a system where uh, uh, the culture recognizes the authority and lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an informal establishment of the Christian faith generally considered but no formal establishment of the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Anglicans being the official state religion, which I think is the kiss of death, but both for the uh, for the established religion and also for uh, that culture being shaped um, in any significant way by a vibrant faith. So I think that there ought to be no established denomination. But I do think that there ought to be an established and recognized faith. So put another way, I would I would want the if I my joke is if I were king for, you know, if I were king or if I were president and what a glorious three days that would be. so if I if I could just move everything around, uh, however however I wanted, I would have the Constitution in the United States recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead and the basic truths of the Apostles' Creed, and I would keep the First Amendment so that Congress shall make no law concerning the establishment of religion. I don't want any established established state churches, but I want the the political authorities to recognize that Jesus rose from the dead, and that means that they can't rule in the old ways anymore. Okay, well, I, I have to confess. So I'm I'm a Baptist. I think I'm in the historic sense here, and so I kind of felt like I had that locked down until I ran into probably on your blog you saying that something like this, like the Constitution should acknowledge the lordship of Christ. Right. And my understanding is. Uh, in your thought, that would work out so that the Christian ethics of hospitality and charity towards neighbor would give us a robust intellectual foundation, uh, ethical foundation to allow for a diversity of worship within the country. Is that accurate? Right. Correct. And so, uh, and and what I'm um, what I'm suggesting is not exactly pie in the sky hopeless dreaming, because the United States spent over a century doing exactly this. So what I'm uh, the secularists are currently telling us that America was secular in its founding, which is simply false. It's just a good, solid, resounding lie. Um, so it, it's false to say that we were secular at our founding. We were a Christian nation. Uh, 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 let me correct that. We were a Christian confederation of nations at the founding. And retained that through a healthy portion of the 19th century, okay, where up to and including Supreme Court decisions that said we are a Christian nation, okay? Uh, So it was everybody knew, everybody acknowledged, everybody understood, you know, when the Catholics, when the Catholics first started immigrating uh, to the United States in droves in the 19th century, the reason they formed the Catholic parochial school system was because the 
government school system was evangelical and Protestant. Not it was not the Catholics didn't form the parochial school system because the government schools were secular. It was because they were uh, evangelical and Protestant sure. schools. Okay, so uh, R. L. Dabney in the 19th century, in his essay on um, on secular education, said prophetically, Christians. He was um, objecting to the what they were doing back then, and he said Christians must prepare themselves. For the following results, all Bibles, catechisms, and prayers will ultimately be driven out of the schools. Now, we look back at that statement, and we say, there were catechisms in the schools? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, there were Protestant evangelical catechisms in the schools and Bibles, and there were Protestant Bibles. They were King James Version of the Bibles and prayers. All right, so um, we had an informal Protestant evangelical establishment for well over a century, okay, and mm-hmm. it worked. Okay, okay, it worked. So what I would and what happened was uh, people started telling the big lie about that, and this is where I would like to have certain things in the Constitution, like a reference to the the, the Apostles' Creed referenced or the the resurrection of Christ referenced, without changing anything on this on the separation of church and state. I like separation of church and state. But that's not the same thing as the separation of God and state or the separation of morality and state. Certainly. Okay. So would it be fair then to say Christian, uh, but not sectarian? Correct. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, so if, if we just take that as a starting point and we say that's the, that's the North star that's going to guide us. Uh, and, and lots of people who aren't even there again, as I mentioned earlier, they're talking about culture making, impacting the culture, shaping the culture, uh, I, I want to lay out two things I think I see and ask if you think they're uh, if it's an accurate summary. And if if so, if you think one is better than the other. Uh, so I see one stream of people talking primarily online about culture making and cultural impact that looks like doing church ministry uh, in a major metropolitan area or and maybe and or distributing content through major media like movies and novels and music. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other side would be uh, to, to adopt the cliches, you know, think local, act globally. So be involved in local politics, uh, be really invested in the lives of your neighbors, be super involved in one specific church or one certain community's ministry. Uh, so that's a twofold question. I know there's a lot there. One, does that sound right to you that that's kind of how evangelicals think about culture making and culture impact? And two, if if so, uh uh, is one better than the other? No, I would say uh, both are fine. Both are absolutely fine, provided uh, provided you're not going native. Okay. 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 If you get involved in local politics and you get caught up in all the bigotries of the local secularists, that's no good. And if you move to Manhattan and start making movies and you're just a hipster Christian, that's no good also. So, you know, so I'm I'm all about Christians uh, making art, uh, making movies, writing books, doing what they do, and they should they should do it as God has gifted them to do. It's it's like a um so a person who's gifted uh, at being a rancher ought not to try to be an art gallery proprietor in on the Upper East Side, uh, and, vice versa, and vice versa. So what has God given to you to do? What What are your desires? What are your abilities? What are your opportunities? And then go and then be faithful to the word 
um, hell, come hell or high water, wherever it is you are. So the issue is, yeah, whether it's local or whether it's in the fast lane or whether it's making movies or whatever, um, go there and don't compromise. So I have read a document from New St. Andrews where the board kind of sketched out what the school wants to be about the business of doing that your uh, secretary generously passed to me. And in that document, you talk about a concept of two kingdoms where um, Christians understand that Christ rules all of life. But he does do under the he does so under these two kingdom headings and uh, the kingdoms are distinct, yet they overlap. A couple of questions on that front, because I think we're getting closer to it with that last answer. Um, one, is this a modification or just a continuation of the historical reformed idea of two kingdoms? There's this. Um, thank you for bringing this up, because there's a lot of confusion on this. The confusion is there's a, a movement in reform circles today uh, abbreviated as the R2K or radical two kingdoms view that's. Um, comes out of Escondido, out of Westminster West, okay? And the radical two kingdoms view is sort of like the state is the state, is the civil realm, and then the church is the church, and there's your two kingdoms, right? Mm-hmm. And the church, the church ought not to get into politics because the church needs to stay in her lane, okay? That's the, that's the two kingdom. Uh, and that R2K view is kind of uh, overlaps or maps onto somewhat uh, with some historic Lutheran conceptions, but even there, not as much as I think some people assume. Uh, The historic Reformed approach to two kingdoms is basically visible and invisible. So you look out at the world, let's say I'm, I'm John Calvin, and I go out and look at Geneva, all right. And I see I see the cathedrals. I see where the city council meets. I see fellow ministers walking down the street. All of them are visible. That's the visible kingdom. That's one kingdom. All right. Then there's the invisible kingdom, the one that only God sees, those who are truly his, those who are the elect, those who are going to be with him in glory at the, the last day. That's the invisible kingdom that no man can see. So basically, it's not a church-state division. It's an internal-external division. So the the historic reform view is, yeah, there's two kingdoms, but there's only one king. And Jesus is the king of my heart, and he's the king of my life. He's the, he's the king of what my neighbors can see, and he's the king of what my neighbors can't see. Or that, that's the, so I would be very much opposed to the... Um, R2K approach to cultural engagement where they say, oh, the church can't speak to uh, uh, the abortion carnage because, you know, or the church can't speak to this political issue or that political issue because we're just to preach the gospel. Well, no, if you're to preach the gospel, that's repent and believe. Well, repent of what? All the sins that your generation is committing, you know, you slave. You slaveholders, you porn users, you um, you can't preach repentance without getting into cultural issues because people, when they sin, sin culturally. Brothels are a cultural thing, okay? Pornography is a cultural thing. Um, uh, repossessions of automobiles and houses, that's a cultural thing. Loan sharks are a cultural thing. So I can't preach repentance without getting into culture. 
Sure. So it, the repentance is an act of public controversy, right? You're kind of picking a uh, picking a fight with the god of the age, the the center of the cultus. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, go ahead, sir. Sir. No, that's it. That was it. Well, so in the, in the scheme of the previous question, the idea then is that you would advocate for a Christian who is an invisible member of Christ's salvific community, engaging in the visible kingdom wherever with shoes or raising cattle or making films and producing novels. Uh, doing so self-consciously as someone who is acting as an operative of Christ's kingdom? Right. Who wants to be obedient. Go out there and do what uh, go, do what God created you to do. Uh, moles must dig and cocks must crow. I, I, tell people, I tell people that I write books for the same reason that dogs bark. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> it is in the nature, huh? Well, I, I believe that. I've, I've read Productivity earlier this year, and I'm still bewildered at your level of productivity, uh, even though I've kind of seen your scheme here for it. Uh, I, I believe the idea of you must write. Yeah, I have to. Yeah. And, and so it doesn't make sense for me to say to someone else with a different set of gifts, why don't you do what I'm doing? It, the, uh, Paul argues against that, leans against that. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the, if, if the whole body were a nose, where would the seeing be? And what we want to do is we want to organize people according to our own gift sets, Right. We want to get a collection of eyeballs together. And we and unfortunately, we even congregate in churches that way. The first church of the eyeball, the first church of the year, the the biker church, the cowboy church. Right. Yeah. Surfer, surfer church. Yep. Surfer church. Sure. So this um, this believer who wants to love his neighbor well and love the Lord well, and he's looking at the world through this two kingdom lens. Uh, again, just I want to check my understanding of your thought here. You would say that there's primarily three um, three kinds of God-established governments that he would step into or she would step into, and that's where that's going to be the operating theater of their vocational calling. So what I would what I would say is, you know, self-governance is primary, but right. self-governance self-governance is going to be played out in the church, in the uh, family, and in the civic or governmental arena? Correct. Going so far. Okay. So um, you also would advocate that that men should take the lead on this sort of governance of Christ's uh, external kingdom, correct? Correct. Okay. I believe male, male leadership is mandatory in the church and normative in the other two. Sure. Absolutely. So uh, there you're thinking about men are called to be elders. Men and only men are called to be elders. Yes. Uh, and ministers and so forth. Um, in um, in the civil realm, you occasionally have the one-off Deborah, who's a judge in Israel, um, or you have Lydia, who's the head of her house in Philippi. Okay, so let's say uh, let's say a, a wealthy man and his wife he dies, and she is left with the business, and she's the head of that family, she's the head of that household. Well, that that's the way it ought to be, but it's not normative. Right. Um, it's, it's she's not sinning by holding that position any more than Queen Elizabeth is sinning by being the queen. Right. But it's not normally that way. So in the in the civil realm and in the family realm, male leadership is normative, but not obligatory. And in the church, 
it's normative and obligatory. Okay, and when you say normative, would it be fair to say that that's what we're hoping for? That uh, you know, all things considered, we're we're hoping for men leading well and yes. creation kind of flourishing under God's general design. There, right? What we're hoping for, and what usually happens. Okay. 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 So when you're, you know, if you're counseling a, a, a young person, let's say who's come through one of the schools you've helped found, and they say, "I think I have some some arts that would be, excuse me, some skills that would be employable in kind of the realm of pop culture, filmmaking, novels, whatever." And you say, "Well, look, we're gonna, you know, I'm sure most of their instructional life is going to be built on these principles you're talking about." Um, would you tell them that? The best thing for them to do is start with a student film, or would you tell them, go get married and have a baby? Or would you say, try to find time to do both? I would say, get married, have kids, work hard at feeding them. Okay. And then feed them through your vocational giftings. Yeah. Feed them. And if uh, your vocational giftings cannot carry the weight of that responsibility, then uh, do what you do on the side. So, get an ordinary ho-hum job to feed your family and then pursue the area that you think you're gifted in evenings and weekends. Sure. Sure. Okay. So feed the family and then let those other uh, gifts kind of find their way in God's created order as he blesses. Right. And it sounds like similar to how you would identify someone who might be an elder candidate in the church, right? Who is serving well, who's God blessing with fruitfulness. And you say, well, maybe maybe the Lord is going to call that guy into eldership. Is that right. a fair comparison? Yes. And it also weeds out all the, the, the diva wannabes because there's lots of people who want to be filmmakers, right? But if you tell them, okay, here's what you have to do is you have to work like a maniac for 10 years. I've got a friend, a filmmaker friend who agrees to take has agreed to take people on to mentor them. If they I, I forget how many it's something like he he says, I want you to film like 90 sunrises in a row. And then I'll take you on. How, how much do you want this? Yeah. Well, and there, there would also be sort of a grammar to that. I'm imagining, right, that you would learn composition and whatnot through just rote yeah. repetition and and. Uh, it wouldn't just be sort of the Miyagi endurance test, you know, to, to let, ex, uh, I don't know, extreme torture weed you out. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, honestly, there it seems like there's another comparison to the church there, because I think there are a lot of people who can envision themselves in church leadership, a lot of men. Uh, but the idea that you should just be serving before you're ever giving a title tends to winnow that quite a bit. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, there's some more specific stuff. I'm trying to work down to something I am fascinated by uh, as an outside observer with your your life. I don't know who I first heard this from, but maybe, I don't know if it's Charles Taylor who, but that basically culture comes through uh, the production of institutions which embody and transmit the values of a given culture or community, but then also specific artifacts, specific books and movies and whatnot. Well, again, as an outsider, I look at your life and I say, this guy has started a lot of stuff, um, multiple schools, a denomination, a church. But then I also see Man on Fire showing up on Amazon Prime. I see lots of books coming out, as we already talked about. Uh, so a twofold question. One, that idea, create institutions and create artifacts, is that uh, an idea that you would subscribe to? And two, if so... How do you decide which to give your time to as a finite creature? How do you parse that out? Right. 
So, yes, I would subscribe to that. Yes, I believe that you need to have institutions that that perpetuate what you're doing, uh, because otherwise it's just you. <laughs> you're just you're just a lonely genius up in the attic um, <laughs> producing producing things that nobody's going to ever read. So you want institutions that will uh, replicate, mimic, pass on, improve upon. So you want institutions and you want artifacts. So I agree with that uh, very much. What was the second part of your question? How do you decide what to give your time to in those two opportunities? Because, you know, we're we're limited in what we can do in a given day and lifespan. <laughs> what you do is you start with your duties. Okay, instead of don't start with your hobbies, start with your duties. So uh, when when I was a young married man and God started giving us kids and I was uh, I was uh, preaching very early on, I had responsibility to preach. I had a responsibility to my wife uh, to feed her, care for her, protect her. I had a responsibility for our children right, to bring them up. Nurture and administer the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. So what I what I didn't don't want to do at that juncture is to go off into the basement to write the great American novel. Yeah, it's hard to put food on the table doing that, right? Right, and it's hard, even if you're putting food on the table and then disappearing and you're distant emotionally, oh, or yeah, you're of course. Sure. Severed, you're, you're cut off from uh, cut off from your family. What you want to do is plow and seed and uh, plow and plant and seed where your duties are. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, when I was a young pastor and a young husband and a young father, I got married when I was 22. I didn't. Uh, I've written a pile of books, right? But my first book didn't come out until I was almost 40. Okay. So um, you can, I would say, instead of getting to the mic, elbowing your way to the microphone so that you can say something, you should be paying attention to your duties and your family and your parishioners and your neighbors so that when God finally gets you to the microphone, you might have something worthwhile to say. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think I have read you somewhere, correct me if I'm wrong, say that basically you're not going to have anything to say until you're 40 anyway, right? That you don't want to rush too quick into that arena. Right. And I'll be honest with you. I, I wanted I wanted to get to make a dent. I wanted to do things earlier than that. But I also wanted to pay close attention to where my um, – credentials for ministry existed, which were in my family. Um, Paul says, if a man doesn't manage his household well, how's he going to be fit to rule in the household of God? Mm -hmm. So I I wanted faithful children. I wanted them to marry faithful spouses. I wanted faithful grandchildren. And by the grace of God, I've got all of that. Praise the Lord. Okay. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. if I could sidebar just a little bit, I, one of the things I have heard from you uh, that I quote quite a bit is that everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. <laughs> right. Uh, sometimes I tell people in a, in, a, in a dark place, you know, if I'm discouraged, I will say everybody wants a reformed church, but nobody wants to do the work of reform. Right. Right. Um, how do you know in a given moment uh, the church I'm serving in has weaknesses but those weaknesses are something that will give me room to work for reform or those weaknesses are so crushing. uh, I'm not going to be able to work for reform here. I need to go do something new. 
And is it possible to port that to other uh, other institution and cultural moments? So, like, um, I'm very thankful for the teachers we have who are serving children in the government school system, but I don't expect them to be able to reform the government school system, right? So how do you think through, hey, I'm going to give into reform here. I'm sorry, I'm going to give myself to reform here, or I'm going to have to step out to actually do the thing that I feel like God is uh, calling me to through my giftedness and my my desires to serve him. Right. So then you have to parse that even further because someone, let's say a public school teacher might say, no, the public schools are beyond reform. That check. That's correct. And I'm just using this to feed my family and my efforts at reform are going to be devoted to this other stuff on the side that I'm sure that I'm doing. Or also, or, I guess you could say I'm also going to get on the school board or try to get on the school board and try right. to have multi multiple levels of influence there. Yeah, I would say um, I would give you sort of a Hobson's choice on on that. If if you're in the government school system uh, and you are wanting to reform that entity, you will either be successful or unsuccessful. If you're unsuccessful, why are you there? If you're successful, they're going to kick you out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you, yeah, either you're going to make a difference, either going to make no difference or you're going to make a difference. If you make no difference, then what's the point? If you start making a difference, somebody's going to find out and somebody's going to see that and they're going to come down on you like white on rice. Right. So um, if you're in, let, let's say someone's got a good job with the church, but it's not going to be the source of the next Reformation. You know, it's a blue hair church. All the average age is 78. Um, you know, and you, you you can do a good work there and God bless you. But that's not it's not the future. Right. Yeah. If. If the person involved knows that God has called him to be involved in whatever the future is, then it might be time to move move along. But I only think that you're obligated to move along um, when at the same point that Trumpkin would have left Caspian's army. So when when Trumpkin volunteers to go uh, on a mission that he doesn't believe in. They say, Trump, I thought you didn't believe in the horn. He said, no more I do, Your Majesty, but I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. You've had my advice. Now's the time for orders. So just faithfully serve as long as it doesn't involve any compromise. But Trumpkin, in another place in the same book, when they propose, when uh, Nickabrick proposes bringing in ogres and hags and uh, evil critters, and someone says, well, we'd forfeit Aslan's favor if we did that. Trumpkin says, well, what's more important is you'd forfeit me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. I'd be gone. So when when people are doing things that are positively evil okay, or just out and out disobedient, you're you're the uh, chair of the session of elders and it's a drifting church and someone proposes bringing in a woman pastor. Well, time to go. We're not obeying the Bible anymore. Sure. It's time to go. It's clear. Yeah. It's clear. As opposed to we're obeying the Bible, but it's kind of duddy. That's a different thing. Uh, duddy being we're not doing it very well or duddy in the sense of like it's a, it's a mixed bag of faithfulness. And so we think maybe we could swing them on the egalitarian, complementarian position. Right. Right. Uh, so where you see uh, there's there's an open door among basically the people at the head of the organizational chart. Maybe yes. keep plugging away. Yeah. But if if the head of the org chart is hostile, you better find an exit strategy. Right. Okay. Okay. 
Well, one of the things uh, my co-host Jared Moore and I do with the podcast is uh, we're actually trying to play off C.S. Lewis, who you just referenced. And you, you know the letter, I think you wrote to Carl Henry saying, I'm not going to do propositional apologetics as much anymore. I think my future is through narrative. And he has that phrase of how stories can steal past the watchful dragons of the heart. Yes. Um, and, and I'm very enthusiastic about that approach to Christian, uh, not just evangelization, but creating category structures and whatnot. It just strikes me that secular entertainment mechanisms have been using the same principle going the other way, right? There are stories that that are handed down uh, through the movie theater that if we were told, hey, this is an assault on a traditional identity uh, of human beings grounded in biological sex, Christians would say, no way, I have no interest in that. But if it comes to a Disney movie, it's going to steal past the watchful dragon, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, in, again, as an outsider, I see uh, a fruitful family, blessed of the Lord. And, and what I've seen with your children is they're in the same game of let's create institutions that improve the world around us. But they're also creating artifacts. So, you know, The River Thief from ND is probably my favorite Christian-made movie. Mm-hmm. Um, as you look back on your life as a father, how do you raise children toward? I mean, of course, we're all, we're all depending on the providence of the Lord. But how do you raise children toward loving art, loving offering their gifts to the world, but not getting washed away in the secularism that defines so much of the artistic enterprise in our country? Does that question make sense? It does. And unfortunately, I can only answer uh, the, the foundation for this answer is just simply the grace of God. God is God has been very, very kind to us. Uh, so it's not like you're getting a product out of a vending machine where you can say, if you put three quarters in, you can get this out. Um, at the same time, it's not a crapshoot either, because elders of churches are supposed to manage their households well, indicating that there is such a thing as a godly management of a household. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and so what you what you do, and one of my books is Standing on the Promises, and and that book has to do with how you trust God. Not you don't work, you don't pedal harder to get your kids in the kingdom. What you do is you understand God's promises and you rest in Him for uh, allowing your children to stay with the covenant. Right. Okay. So all right. So it's it's by grace. It's by grace through faith. It's not by works, lest any anyone should boast. At the same time, at the same time, when your next door neighbor sees that you're you know you're telling him it's all by grace, it's not by works that my that I'm saved. Yeah, he says, yeah, right. But you work harder than anybody I've ever seen, right? You say no, but it's not uh, it's not based. The works aren't the foundation. The works are the fruit. Mm-hmm. You're set you're set free to work, right? Mm-hmm. If God if God's promised you your kids and you receive that gift by faith, you're set free to work hard because it's not dependent upon your you working hard. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's it's justification, sanctification, writ small in in this smaller area. All right. So then, what we did is uh, when our kids were um, when our kids were growing up, we would they went through Logos school, all three of them. And we had um, basically dinner. Dinner every night was a debrief session from the day, and the kids would all tell stories. And 
they um, this is what happened on the playground and Mrs. So-and-so said thus, thus and such. And and my friend said this to me, what should I say to him tomorrow about this? And so we basically we would be uh, viewing the game film pretty much every night. So the kids would come home with stories. Right. They tell their story. They tell their tell the, the little vignette, the little anecdote. And then we talk about it and we analyze what you should do tomorrow or how should, how you should follow that up. And it's gotten to the point where um, we could get I could uh, if all our kids, our kids are married and have kids of their own now. But if they were all at home and we all went away for a day and came back home that night for dinner absolutely everybody would have a story, <laughs> right? This is what happened. This is what I observed. This is what I saw. This is what amused me. The clerk at Rosar said thus and such. The, you know, and if you, uh, and, and a bunch of the things that, uh, for example, in Nate's uh, Tilt-A-Whirl or in his Death by Living, a lot of that writing is simply the fruit of him being observant, watching watching what happens. And he did that because he had an audience, right? Yeah, right. right. Um, so not, and not only him, but the girls. Um, so there's a built-in studio audience every night at dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that seems like a Petri dish for creatives then that, that they're going to have a forum. So everybody, everybody wants to talk and everybody wants to listen. Sure. Okay. Well, that's very helpful. Um, let me give you another scenario. So you're a pastor. Uh, you've run into both of these camps, I'm, I'm certain. There's the person whose family's approach to uh, engaging with secular entertainment is none of that shall enter the home, right? So we're going to have nothing there. Uh, I've lived long enough and pastored long enough to see that sometimes the byproduct of that unintentionally is the kids have a ravenous appetite for this thing they've never known how to encounter. They think it's wonderful because it's new and alluring. The other side is, uh, you know, the the dad who loves Jaws, and at the first time, you know, his kid's five years old, and he's like, "We're going to watch Jaws tonight," and you're you're saying we sh- we need to have a little bit more of a filter. Uh, how do you help? How would you encourage a parent or counsel a parent to think through the kind of choices of do watch, don't watch, do read, don't read, and at what stage? That that may be too broad, but I just I'd love to hear your thoughts. So um, Nancy and I were very when our kids were little. Um, we were very strict on that kind of, very strict on that kind of thing. And when you say little, maybe an age range. So I would say, um, elementary, okay. elementary school. Thank you. So pre- preschool, elementary school. So it was standard operating procedure. Our, our kids went to a Christian school. They had Christian friends. And when they went to a classmate's birthday party, all Christians, people in the church, and they were going to show a movie, the kids had to call home to get clearance on what the movie, you know. Mm-hmm. So we were very, um, we hovered over it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But one of the things that you have to re- recognize is that uh, a lot of parents invert this. So what they what they do is when kids are little and sin is relatively benign or relatively cute, they let things go, they let things go, and they let things go. And then when the kid gets older and older and older, finally they're, they're – um, old enough to start watching porn or to buy drugs or to get a girl pregnant mm-hmm. or, or to wreck a car. And then the parents clamp down. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden they introduce standards, the kids 15 or 16 and, and the parents rush in with standards out of panic. What I think you ought to be doing 
is when your kid's 18 and he's going to join the Navy, he's going to be off in the Philippines and he's not going to have to call home for anything. Right. It's internalized. If it's not internalized by 18, forget about it. Uh Okay. And that's that means that by the time they're 16 or 17, you ought to be practicing with them having internalized things. So uh, what we did is we were very strict when the kids were little. And then when my oldest daughter, Becca, was 16, I had a talk with her and I said, Becca, you're 16 now. We've brought you up a certain way. We trust you. Uh, we're lifting standards. We're, we, we removed the training wheels. Now, let's see I what could, you do with it. Let's see what you do. Now, I could see parents doing that prematurely and then having to come back and put the training wheels back on. But in our case, God really blessed it where uh, the standards really were internalized by that, by that point. And so um, we were, we were strict and very, um, very strict parents when the kids were little. And then we were probably among the loosest parents when they were older when they were older and it was, and it was kind of interesting with, we switched places with some of the other parents, right? Where some of the kids in high school were, Oh, I'm dying to see that movie, but my parents would kill me if I, you know, if I saw that movie and Becca was able to say, well, I could go see it if I wanted, but I, I don't want to. Don't want to. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I guess, is it, is it fair to say that the younger they are, you kind of trying to shape their sense of what's normal and what's upright and what's wicked. And yeah. then, sort of in the same way you would with uh, education, that you give them the grammar, walk them through the logic, and then turn them loose into rhetoric and say, go make something of your gifts in the world. Yeah, when they're, when they're one and a half year, when they're, they're one and a half, and there's a way to, to take this wrong. So I would urge all of your listeners to not take this wrong. <laughs> but when your toddler's one and a half, you're training puppies. Okay. It's, uh, it's cause and effect. It's, uh, you know, no, you go here, bad things happen. You obey your mother. You know, it's, it's, it's more training. The older they get, it's more education and with a view toward the, the heart. Now you always want the, you always want to be aiming for the heart, but when uh, with toddlers, the heart is on their sleeve. Mm. All right. Well, that's super helpful. Thank you for that. Uh, I want to honor your time. Two more questions. One analysis, one advice, and I'll I'll get out of here. And thank you again for your time. Uh, You're welcome. You have written extensively on the Benedict Option uh, on your blog, and Mm -hmm. listeners can go there and find much more here. Uh, but that's a that's a term that comes up when evangelicals talk about life and culture, how to engage or or relate to culture. Um, I think some people would say what has happened in Moscow is a pretty good picture of what Dreher would hope for in the Benedict Option. Uh, mm-hmm. My sense, though, is that you think the Benedict Option, in your analysis, lacks an eschatological end. Correct. So God's given you all wonderful, beautiful things in your family, your church, uh, your schools there in Moscow. Is it the eschatological vision that you think has helped uh, serve what's happening there in a way that people who kind of take Dreher's approach won't be likely to see? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's absolutely in our day and in our day and time, I think it's absolutely essential to have an eschatology that, that forms shapes and protects this because um, if we were living um, uh, if we were in the 1600s and North America was still largely uninhabited, you could, if you were some off-the-wall religious group 
with no eschatology or a screwed up eschatology or a robust biblical eschatology, pretty much anybody could come to America and carve out a spot. Right. Yeah. You, you you could carve out a spot because there was lots of woods and, you know, lots of resources. And that's what people did. Right. Um, that, that's what that's what happened. Um, but today there is no empty North America to our west waiting for us. We can't go to the moon. We can't. Right. So the Benedict the Benedict option is not viable for the simple reason that they won't let you. Mm. Right. So you've got you've got to have some way of building city walls that can define what you're doing and can keep give the cohesion to the group that you're identified with over against the secular uh, lords of the earth. Right. Mm. So if if you if you just have a bunch of people who've read the Benedict Benedict option and you move into the same neighborhood. Uh, you're going to get swallowed. You're going to get digested. Yeah. Uh, and what what the eschatology does is makes helps make you undigestible. <laughs> uh, you almost persuade me to be a post millennialist. <laughs> Have you written more extensively on that idea of building the walls? Uh, I was thinking I've not read Empires of Dirt. I plan to, but is there somewhere you've fleshed this out further? Empires of Dirt is the place where I've done the most on that. Okay, great. All right, so last one, uh, pieces of advice for the Christian who is has some skin in the game in the entertainment world. So I'm thinking and would love to hear your thoughts on kind of two categories. One, a Christian who is an entertainer, and the Lord seems to be giving him some kind of platform, like a proto-ret and link before they fall off the deep end. Right. Uh, the other person is the the software engineer who is helping build Disney Plus and make sure it stays online. What does faithfulness look like, uh, and what would you be pursuing if those were guys in your in your church? What would you tell them to give themselves to in those scenarios? If I had the next Rhett and Link in my church, I'd be telling them to study what happened to Rhett and Link. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> All right. I, yeah. What What was the what was the virus that got to them? What What was the hook? What was the appeal? Where did it Where did it start to go wrong? And the the answer is speaking past pastorally. When people apostatize, the answer is always going to be somewhat like six years before everybody thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have Christian celebrities who are at the top of their game in within the Christian world. And most Christians think they're the greatest thing ever. And I'm deep inside going, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, you know, code four. (laughs) This is not going to (laughs) end. This is not going to end well. This is because uh, the adulation of Christians can go to your head as much as the adulation of anybody else. Mm. And our, our celebrity culture is no better than anybody else's celebrity culture. We're not supposed to have celebrities. Mm. You're here. Right. Yeah. It's not supposed to be. um, It's just not supposed to work that way. And a celebrity, I would I would say it's different. Uh, I'm not trying to erase the way God made the world. The world is hierarchical. And if I had a chance to meet a great war hero or a great leader from history or, you know, there are some certain people that you would be honored to meet. But a celebrity is someone who's famous for being famous. Hmm. 
right? There, um, and it used to be it uh, it used to be in nineteenth century America that you established yourself by means of character. Today, you establish yourself by means of personality. Mm-hmm. All right, spectacle. We, yeah. Spectacle. We have a personality-driven system. So basically, um, I would be I would caution people who want to go into that line of work, and I have I have done so. This is part of the caution that I've given. I've warned people: you've got to make sure that your motives are clean from top to bottom, front to back, side to side. You can't want to be famous for the sake of being famous. You've got to want the glory of God, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you know, et cetera. Now for the software engineer who's um, doing what he does, I've, I would think of Proverbs. Do you see, <coughs> do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before Kings. Hmm. So, so I would, I would do what you do. As long as it's not corrupt work, I would do what you do and try to get to the top of your game, try to be the best in the world for the glory of God and the sake of his kingdom, and then wait for God to promote that if he wants to. So in, in the guy who specifically is working for Disney and he sees uh, he sees some kind of, you know, eventually they're going to be pushing something. I'm not going to help them get online. Right. They're going to push something out to a movie that I can in conscience help contribute to. Right. Uh, any, uh, and that, this is the last one, I promise I'll let you go. Uh, any kind of road markers you would say, hey, this is where you're getting close to the line of. The main thing I would, the, yeah, the main thing I would tell people there in, in working for Disney, but also for working for most American corporations today, or if you're in the, the American military, you know what your general job is, and you know what the first challenge to compromise is likely to be, what category is, if you're in the military, uh, ordering women into combat, or if you're in, um, if you're in the entertainment in- industry, uh, writing code to uh, promote this pornographic or quasi-pornographic movie, or you know what, whatever, uh, you know what the what it could land on your desk. And what I would do is encourage everybody going into the secular world is to have your triggers um, adjusted beforehand. Okay. Okay. All right. Don't wait. Don't wait for the crisis. Uh huh to try to figure out what you think, figure out what you think. Say, if I'm going to be in this industry, this is where the demands are going to be placed on me. And I'm, uh, and if this happens, um, my wife and I have agreed that I turned in my letter of resignation. Gotcha. So get with your elders prayerfully considered. This is the line and just keep monitoring if it's approaching. Okay. Well, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you again so much. People can find you on Twitter at Douglas Wills uh, on Amazon prime with, uh, man rampant. What what else have you got your uh, hands in right now that you might tell listeners to check out? Okay, I'd say the main clearinghouse to find out what I'm doing is DougWills.com, which is my blog. So Absolutely. blog at DougWills.com. Okay, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Pastor Doug. I, I appreciate everything you're doing. And I, I told you this once in person. I don't know if you remember. Keep doing everything you're doing except for that baptizing baby stuff. All right. <laughs> <laughs> have a good day. All right, bye. All right, guys, there you go. Wasn't that a treat? Uh, I just enjoyed every minute of uh, that. 
But see, it is a real treat to kind of get to pick his brain, and I'd love to do it on a whole bunch of other subjects, so maybe he'll be gracious enough to come back. You heard Doug mention a couple of books of his, uh, or or maybe me mention to him a couple of his books. I'll try to put links to all those titles in the show notes if you guys are interested in picking up a copy. You may have additional time to read during this corona quarantine, and so this is a good way to fill some of that time. Those will be in the show notes, like I said. Also, you can find Doug, as he mentioned, at DougWills.com. He's also on various social media platforms, uh, particularly pretty active on Twitter. And so if you're on Twitter, give him a follow. Uh, You can find a link to that Twitter account on DougWills.com, his personal blog. As for us, we are the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast, and we are also available on pretty much every social media platform. Our handle is almost always PCCDPod. We'd love for you to give us a follow, send us a friend request, like our page, uh, whatever it is on whatever social media platform we're talking about, because we want to interact with you. We want to uh, hear what you find profitable, what you have questions about. We really do want to serve the church as she lives in a world of God's own making, uh, filled with culture that uh, is either going to conform and tell the truth about God's self-revelation in His Son, or it's going to tell a lie and attempt to swim against the flow of what God is sovereignly executing through history. We want to help you tap into the good and reject the evil on that front. Of course, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a review on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. Uh, We'd appreciate a five-star. Can't give that. Give us whatever you can, honestly. Leave us a comment. We'll read them for sure. Uh, But in the way that... Various algorithms come to play in podcasting marketplaces. Uh, The better reviews we get, the more people who tend to have our show suggested to them. I'd also appreciate it if you knew someone who would enjoy this episode or, you know, more broadly, what we're doing in general here on the podcast. Mention this to them. Tell them that you think maybe they ought to give it a listen and see if they like it uh, as well. I'd appreciate that. I'm not entirely sure what... At this point, Jared and I have another episode in the works. We've got to sit down and hit record, but we're planning to do that very soon. So be looking for that on the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast feed and your podcast player. Thanks again for listening. And on behalf of Jared Moore, this is Jeff Wright on the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast, reminding you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God. Because you are. We'll talk to you next time.